The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Well, good morning. The advanced team seeking intelligence on the promised land and our future arrival there with the Lord Jesus Christ has returned. And we had a tremendous time. It was, uh, it was just great. I think uh, it was surpassed everybody's expectations and we learned things that we had not expected to learn, saw things we had not expected to see, and went places we had not anticipated going. We even got a chance to go down to Bethlehem, which is in Palestinian-controlled territory, and from there we went to uh, the Herodian, which is Herod's palace that was located just outside of Bethlehem, and most tours never even go there. Uh, Wayne had not been able to even get there on tours he's led for the last seven years, so that was quite... Uh, an opportunity and experience for us as well as a number of other things. So on Tuesday, July the 4th, we're going to have a special July 4th service at 5.30 in the afternoon followed by an indoor picnic since it may rain and certainly will be hot. It will be indoor. And then following the eating of the meal, we're going to have about a 30 minute presentation on the trip where we're going to put together a slideshow. We won't show all the slides since most of us took a minimum of 12 or 1400 pictures and that's probably a little too much for everybody but we'll see bits and pieces of them throughout the coming uh, coming years. If you want to help with the meal on Tuesday, make sure you see and write. This weekend is a special weekend which is probably why there's a few extra vacant seats this morning and people are away for a four-day weekend for the 4th of July. It is our opportunity in this nation to celebrate our independence as our forefathers had a unique vision of freedom and what freedom entailed. And that inspired them to uh, declare their independence from England because of the oppressive taxation and if you go back and read the records as to just how much they were being taxed, you'll be quite shocked. It's quite a bit less than you pay on your income tax and substantially less than what you pay on city sales tax. And they deemed it outrageous that it was slavery, that it was servitude, that it was tyrannical government. Of course, the primary reason was because they, it was uh, imposed upon them without representation so they had no say in the matter. We have representatives who choose to tax us egregiously today so we don't have quite the same uh, rationale for revolt although we do find the oppressive taxation revolting. Nevertheless, the scripture says we are to render unto Caesar that which is Caesar. So we are going to have a special on July 4th discussing a little bit about the impact of Christianity on the foundation, founding of our nation because I am a firm believer that it is only the framework of Bible doctrine that gives a people and gives individuals the capacity 
for freedom and the understanding of personal and individual responsibility that goes with it, as well as the proper role of government. And it was in that context of a Christian theism that the American Revolution, actually a war for independence, took place. And so we'll cover that on <coughs> on Tuesday. In light of the significance of this uh, independence celebration this weekend, we're going to sing some of our uh, favorite patriotic hymns this morning. So we'll begin with hymn number 571, My Country, Tis of Thee. Before we begin to sing, let's open in a word of prayer. Our Father, we are indeed grateful that we live in this nation, a nation of uh, fr- true freedom, and even though many of our freedoms have eroded over the past century due to the uh, impact of pagan thought on government and on people's lives, we still have residual freedoms due to the tremendous vision and impact of Bible doctrine upon our founding fathers. Father, at this time, especially in light of the war against terrorism, the war in Iraq and Afghanistan, we continue, continue to pray for our troops, continue to pray for uh, each individual in the military for their uh, safety, security, for their wisdom, their skill. Above all, Father, we pray for their families, that you would strengthen them and that in this test that they are going through, that you might use it to uh, cause many of them to come face to face with the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray for the numerous chaplains and, and individual uh, believers who are soldiers and officers, that they would have uh, take advantage of many opportunities to present the gospel to those who need to hear it. Father, we pray that you would give our president wisdom and skill in the decisions he makes in foreign policy. We pray that our freedom might continue and be preserved. But above all, Father, we pray that as believers, that no matter what happens and no matter what the trends of history may present us, that we might stand firm on the truth of your word and rest and rely upon your protection for you and you alone are our source of security and happiness and strength. Now, Father, as we worship you today, we pray that we will keep you foremost in our thoughts as we focus on you both in song and in the study of your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Our scripture reading this morning continues in Psalm 119. Psalm 119. And I believe we're in about verse 137, even if I'm repeating this, the reading of Scripture always bears repetition. Psalm 119, verse 137 to 144. Righteous are you, O Lord, and upright are your judgments. Your testimonies which you have commanded are righteous and very faithful. My zeal has consumed me because my enemies have forgotten your words, your words are very pure. Your word is very pure. Therefore, your servant loves it. I am small and despised, yet I do not forget your precepts. Your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness, and your law is truth. Trouble and anguish have overtaken me, yet your commandments are my delight. The righteousness of your testimonies is everlasting. Give me understanding. And I shall live. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, 
But he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of Him, and through Him, and to Him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we get started in our study this morning, we ought to have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure that you are in right relationship with God the Holy Spirit. Anytime we have sin in life, it breaks that fellowship. It hinders the sanctifying, spiritual growth-producing ministry of God the Holy Spirit. Uh, The Scriptures call it quenching the Spirit, and it is only by... Uh, confession of sin, admission of our sin in privacy to God the Father that we have that we have forgiveness, cleansing, key word. We learned a lot about cleansing when we were in Israel this last trip and their obsession with the ritual cleansing. We'll see a little bit of that when we do the slideshow on Tuesday night, but it is nevertheless an important principle of Scripture that we need to be cleansed of post-salvation sin so that we can continue to go forward in the spiritual life. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Lord, we're indeed grateful that we can gather together this morning to study your word. It is your word that is our strength. It's our confidence. It's uh, your word that is the tool God the Holy Spirit uses to transform us. Uh, Jesus prayed in the, uh, uh, before he went to the cross in his high priestly prayers to sanctify us by means of truth. Your word is truth. It is your word, your truth of your word that is the power and strength of our life. It is what informs us of reality. Now, Father, as we study these things this morning, we, meet, we be encouraged, strengthened in our own spiritual life not only to see how these principles apply to us in a day-by-day existence, but also in terms of our future orientation. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, while you are turning to Revelation 3, I'll just give you one small anecdote from the trip. All trips produce certain bonding among everybody, and you get to know different things about different people. And... uh, we learned a lot about one another, and it was encouraging to see how everybody uh, fit together. We didn't have any problems. Nobody tried to kill each other or acted like they were going to kill each other. But we, we did notice that there were certain characteristics that dominated. And these were exemplified in three common questions, and these were questions that were asked on a daily basis. And the most common question that was asked was, where's the bathroom? <laughs> and there was... I won't mention any names, but there was a couple of individuals on the trip who didn't take a tour of the Holy Land. They took a tour of the restrooms in the Holy Land, from Dan to Beersheba. They're going to write a book. So that was the first most often asked question. The second most often asked question was, uh, Robbie, do you have time for a question? (laughs) 
So I answered lots and lots of questions. And the third most commonly asked question, you just had to have been there to really catch the drift of this, was, where's Pam? (laughs) Now, I go shopping with my wife all the time, and if I turn my head for two seconds and turn back, she's gone. She can be across the store, up to the next floor. I mean, it's just amazing. She gets in her own little world, and that's not a good thing when you are in the Arab quarter and you're, you know... (laughs) Of Jerusalem, and you're surrounded by uh, enemy forces, as it were, or if you are in Bethlehem, or if you're just going through uh, some tour where there's lots of other people around, and all of a sudden, wait a minute, where's Pam? Now, that really came to roost on Thursday. Many of you know she was supposed to stay in Israel to work with Randy Price on his dig. This is the last year of his five-year license to dig on the plateau there at Qumran that, as we'll see in the pictures this next week, directly overlooks the fourth cave where they discovered the Isaiah Scroll. It's uh, about maybe 50 yards across the gully, and we were there for a short time, and then uh, we dropped her off on the way back, and we left Israel time Tuesday at midnight. And so we got back here, and Thursday morning when I got up, which would have been 4 in the afternoon there, which was when I said I would call, I called, and I couldn't get her, I couldn't get Randy, I couldn't get anybody. And so the question became, where's Pam? And then, uh, so I called Connie, and I said, well, I've got to teach my class, so call Randy's office in San Marcos, find out, just make sure i got all the right numbers to dial his cell phone. So when I got out of class, I called Connie, and Connie said, well, we don't know where Pam is. Randy's on his way back to the States because his mother passed away, went to be with the Lord uh, Wednesday morning. So that's something you can remember in prayer is uh, uh, Randy Price and his family at this time. He's very close to his mother. Uh, We always shared the fact that we were both uh, close to our mothers. We were both only children. For those of you who don't know, Randy and I have been friends since we were seniors in high school. So uh, the question then I talked to his, then I called the guy in San Marcos, and he had no idea where Pam was. Well, one large group went to Jerusalem, and another group went here, and somebody went there. We don't know where she was. I couldn't get, we had picked up an Israeli cell phone, so we could, I could call there. We couldn't find her. And about 3.30 in the afternoon, my cell phone rang, caller ID, said it was Pam. That meant she was in country. So she was in Newark. She had managed to get a seat on the same flight with Randy on the way back, and had decided that since she was there primarily to help Randy, and Randy was not going to go back, that he was turning the dig over to Israeli authorities to finish it. He only had two more weeks to go, that she would go ahead and come back. We do, I think, someone has pictures of her actually digging in the dirt. She did have one day digging in the dirt there, and her comment was that, that even after taking about a 25 or 30 minute shower, after you've been digging in the Judean sand all day, that after you get out of the shower and you towel off with a white towel, it comes off brown. <laughs> so she did, uh, she did have a, have a good time. They discovered some things which she can't talk about because they're sworn to secrecy. Archaeologists are like that. So that was, uh, that was our trip. And now you may be looking around going, where's Pam? <laughs> So her sister moved this weekend, so she took advantage of that to go uh, help her move. Okay, Revelation chapter 3, verse 7. You will be entertained with more stories about the trip on, uh, on Tuesday. It was uh, quite an adventure. Revelation chapter 3, verse 7. What we've seen in the seven letters to the seven churches is that each of these 
uh, critical evaluation reports that the Lord gives for each congregation entails certain components. There is a commission or an opening address to the angel of the church of uh, Laodicea or Philadelphia, Sardis, whatever it is. Then there is a, a citation related to specific attributes of the Lord Jesus Christ, most of which go back to uh, the vision that John had of the Lord Jesus Christ in his high priestly judicial robes back in uh, Revelation chapter 1. These, of course, the reference here in verse 7 is the only place that doesn't that brings in new attributes not related to that vision in chapter 1. Then there is a commendation, a praise for uh, spiritual advance, positive features in the congregation. All but, all but two have a commendation. Then there is also a condemnation, a warning about a spiritual flaw in the congregation. And all of these have some condemnation except for two. So two lack a commendation and two lack a condemnation and the uh, evaluation of the church of Philadelphia lacks a condemnation that's important to understand uh, verse 8 there is no condemnation here this is all commendation and we'll see the details there in a minute then there's a correction a prescription to recovery or a challenge a command to listen to apply in light of future rewards and these are all involved in this we'll get into the uh, last couple of elements of this next in the next two or three weeks. Actually, we get into a section of this uh, evaluation report that is very important. It is one of, I would say, one of two or three key passages in the New Testament that support the doctrine of the pre-tribulation rapture. We'll just get up to it today, and we will get into the doctrine of the tribulation and the rapture uh, in the next couple of weeks. This will be foreshadowing and preparation because we are just about done with this introductory section. We'll cover 3, 8 through 10 uh, this morning, and we only have another 12 verses in this chapter, and then we get into the prophetic section of the book of Revelation. So this will be uh, some uh, foresight and preparation. Church is written to, I mean, the epistle, the evaluation is written to the church at Philadelphia, and here we have a map indicating the location of Philadelphia in the Roman province of Asia, which is in the western part of what is now modern Turkey, what was then Anatolia. Anatolia meaning the land in the east, named by the Greeks because Anatolia was east of Greece. And so we have followed the progression here from the first church here in Ephesus, then to Smyrna, Pergamum, uh, Thyatira, uh, Sardis, and now uh, Philadelphia. We have one more to go, and that is down here in Laodicea. So we have followed a clockwise tour of these early churches. But these are not all of the early churches. These were selected under the uh, sovereignty of God because each of these congregations portray certain trends that will take place in various congregations down through the church age. These are not uh, progressive in nature. There is a view that you'll run into at times that each of these uh, churches portray a, a period in church history, the predominant characteristics. There's numerous flaws with that view, and I have uh, discussed that at some earlier time in this series. These are trends that occur in just about any congregation at any time 
in, in church history. And what we see as we compare these evaluations is the kinds of things that the Lord Jesus Christ will be evaluating at the judgment seat of Christ. So you can create your own checklist. I'll do it for you when we wrap up the third chapter so that we can take a, a final look at these things in, in summation. Now we see this first verse. And to the angel, the, the angelic witness, the angelic court reporter who is keeping a record for the heavenly court of the way God's justice works out in history within these various congregations. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true. This is a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who has the key of David. This is a reference to his messianic credentials. That's important because the problem, the adversity that this congregation is facing, unlike an adversity we face, comes from unsaved Jews who are hostile to these uh, believers in their midst, and we'll see that in our verse this morning. So this is an allusion to that, that it is Jesus who is the greater son of David, and he has the key, that is, access to the kingdom comes only through Jesus as the Messiah. He is the one who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. Then we come to verse 8. Verse 8, he begins his evaluation report. He says, I know your works. Again, I pointed out that this is the Greek uh, verb oida for knowledge, which includes his total and comprehensive knowledge of the church. He doesn't miss anything. He knows every detail. There is nothing that remains hidden. There is nothing that uh, slips by him. He is the only uh, uh, only. Uh, judge with integrity because he is the only one who knows every detail. But something interesting happens in verse 8. There is a uh, an excitement that's going on here in the midst of this, and there is an insertion of a parenthetical statement here uh, that isn't found in any of the other evaluation reports. It's as if there's a, a level of excitement here. I know your works, but wait a minute, let me tell you something. And then he goes on to finish what that evaluation is. So I have set this uh, apart in a uh, yellow highlighted section here in parenthesis. As we would see in the way the Greek grammar works itself out in the other, in comparison with the other letters, it would normally read, I know your works that you have. Here the that is translated for, we'll get there in a minute. But the parenthetical statement here is, see I have set before you, an open door, and no one can shut it. Now, the last two lessons we focused on this because it indicates evangelistic opportunity, that is, missions. And missions involves not only local evangelism, but also evangelism beyond the local geographical area, which is what we normally think of as as missions. But it includes the whole opportunity of taking the gospel to those who have I've never heard it. So we spent a couple of weeks talking about the importance of missions and that as individual believers and as a congregation, we should have a vision for missions. Well, the Lord says, I know your works, and then he goes on to identify them. And he, the New King James uses the English preposition for, which is a poor translation. The Greek uses this little word, and this is important. Every now and then we just have to take some time to understand some technicalities in the Greek. And this, trust me folks, 
This not only gets real technical a little later on, and when we get to the beginning of verse 10, but the technicality is based on the use of this little Greek uh, particle, hati. And it can be translated, um, it can be translated because, it can be translated for, or it can be translated that. Uh, when it's translated that, it it's, it's, uh, indicates content. Uh, the word sometimes is used. They didn't have quotation marks in Greek like we do. We would write out a sentence, John said, comma, quote, and then you have the statement, and then period, and then close quote. In Greek, you indicate a direct quotation by using this little particle, hati. It's, so it's left untranslated in a direct quote. In an indirect quote, you, you, and you have to determine that just from the context, you would have the same kind of construction. So hati indicates direct quotes and indirect quotes. It's also used to indicate something that grammarians call exegetical, big word. You never heard that word before, probably. And uh, it simply means it gives you the content of something. I know something, and then you get the content of it. I know your works, that, and it explains that it's not causal. But the word also has, as its use, a causal sense, which is what we'll see down in verse 10. If you just skip, let your eyes skip down to verse 10, you'll note that the first word in verse 10 is because. That translates the same Greek word. It's a critical translation problem, though, at the beginning of that verse. It's not um, indicating a content there like it is here. So that's how we should understand it. This word is it's used in every other evaluation report following the statement, I know your works, that. And so what follows the hati is the works that are uh, under observation, under evaluation. So that tells us that this isn't introducing, um, a, it's not for, for in English, indicates giving the giving of a reason and it and it it overlaps into the sense of causation he's he, he isn't saying i know your works uh, and i've set before you an open door because you have a little strength he he's not saying that it's that that's what gives us this understanding from the grammar that that uh, previous statement is a parenthesis but he knows something he knows something we've gone over this before these are three things uh, that form the commendation section for this evaluation report. First of all, you have a little strength. And the word there for strength is the Greek noun dunamis, which means power. Now, there are some, there, some who you may hear or read who say that this means that they were weak spiritually, that they did not have a, a spiritual power, but that's not what this is saying here. It's not a, a mention of spiritual power, spiritual strength, because the strength that we have in our spiritual life is based on the eternal omnipotence of God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. It's not measured out or it doesn't come out in little small increments. We have passages such as 1 Corinthians one twenty four, But to those who are the called, both Jews and the Greeks, Christ the power, the dunamis of God, and the wisdom of God. There's not just a little bit of power in Christ. It's, it's all or nothing. It's an absolute concept. Uh, 1 Corinthians one eighteen, For the word or the message of the cross, that is the gospel message, is foolishness to those who are perishing. 
But to us who are being saved, it is the dunamis, the power of God. It's not a little bit. It's not a a relative thing. It is an absolute thing. Another passage, uh, Romans uh, chapter 1, verse 4. Christ was declared the Son of God with power uh, by the resurrection from the dead. So the point I'm making here is when dunamis relates to spiritual power, and spiritual strength, it's an absolute reality. When we are walking by means of the Spirit, we have the supernatural power from God the Holy Spirit to live the Christian life. It's not a little bit. It's not a fraction. Uh, it's none of those things. It's an all-or-nothing concept. So what we see here is that uh, when uh, John, or when the Lord Jesus Christ evaluates them and says that they have a little strength, he's not talking about their spirituality. For, and another reason it's not talking about their sp- spirituality is that would be a negative statement, wouldn't it? That, yeah, you're just not too strong spiritually. You're a little weak. There would be an indication of, of uh, something negative there. But this is not included in a uh, negative statement. Let me go back a couple of slides so you see the verse. I know your works, that you have three things, and all three things are either going to be positive or negative. And so the first thing is is a positive. You have little strength. And this is a simply a reference to the fact that numerically they're small in terms of their uh, ability to impact and influence the culture around them because they appear to be uh, numerically weak and small and insignificant, they they in, in their human strength they can't do anything, but they are strong spiritually, and that's indicated by the next two phrases. Jesus says, "You have kept my word." Now, this word "kept" is one we'll look at a little later on. It's the Greek word "tereo." It's used a number of different ways. It's used for protection, as we'll see in verse ten. But it's also a word for obedience, for maintaining something. And they have kept his word. Now let me skip to a couple of other passages. For example, John fourteen fifteen, Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep, you will be consistently obedient to my commandments. That is, same word, tereo. And here we see that the keeping of the mandates of Scripture is an indication of spiritual maturity, and it is only through the obedience to the Word of God, making it a priority, letting it transform our thinking, let it transform our lives. It is only in that way that we demonstrate that we love God. We don't demonstrate we love God by coming together at church and singing little choruses about how we love God and in self-absorption, which is what happens in a lot of congregations today. Uh, people today have uh, erected uh, idols in their mind about who God is and who Jesus is, and then they emote about how they love them. That is not; it doesn't fit biblical views of hymnody or hymnology. If you study the Psalms, you see that the Psalms are not, they're God-centered, they're not the worshiper-centered. And so that should be the, the, just the lyrics of the Psalms should be our standards for how hymns are written. And there are many hymns, not just contemporary hymns, but if you go back and read some of the uh, words for the revivalist hymns, as they were called, that came out in the late 1800s. They had that same flaw. They're very me-centered. They're very experience-oriented as opposed to 
uh, theocentric or doctrinally uh, centered. So it's a it's a challenge to keep our focus on who God is. Love for God is not uh, an emotion. It's not indicated by that. It's indicated by our priority by keeping His commandments. So the church here at uh, Philadelphia has kept his word, indicates spiritual growth, spiritual maturity. John fourteen twenty one, Jesus said, He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. He's not talking about the Mosaic law. I want you to make sure you understand that. He's talking about the mandates, both the positive uh, imperatives that we find in the New Testament as well as the negative prohibitions. He's talking about key, obeying, putting into practice the things that are mandated in the Scripture. That's not in contrast to grace. Being obedient is not necessarily legalistic. Being obedient is how we demonstrate our love for Christ. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And then he goes on. To, Jesus goes on to say, And he who loves me will be loved by my Father and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. So we see a progression here that as we learn the word and as we uh, take it in and, and it transforms our lives and we're obedient to him, we demonstrate our love, we grow in capacity of love for God. And as a result of that, Jesus Christ and God the Father disclose more of themselves to us. And incidentally, that's done through his word. We come to a greater appreciation, understanding of who God is and who Christ is through his word. And it's a cycle. The more we learn, the more we obey, the more uh, the Holy Spirit discloses uh, the Father and the Son to us through our study of the Word, and this is the process of spiritual growth. One other passage in John fourteen twenty three, Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our abode with him. And that term abode isn't talking about the, the positional reality of Jesus Christ and God the Father and the Holy Spirit taking up residence in the believer as a temple of the Holy Spirit at the instant of salvation. The word abode has to do with that Greek verb. It comes from the Greek word. It's the noun form of the Greek verb meno, which is always used in John's writings to indicate fellowship to indicate intimate fellowship. And it is used that way whenever the Lord Jesus Christ is talking about his own relationship to the Father. So it's a, a, it indicates deeper levels of intimacy and fellowship with the Father as a result of our spiritual growth and obedience. Now, in addition to keeping his word, the third element there was that... Uh, in, in verse 8, the third element is that they did not deny His name. Even under persecution, they did not deny Christ, unlike the Apostle Peter, who denied Christ three times uh, the night of the crucifixion. This was a congregation that was under a uh, persecution, and they did not deny Christ. Now, the interesting thing here is that when you get to the verb here for denied, it's in the aorist tense, which is a simple past tense. So it indicates something that had actually happened in the remote past. In contrast to the fact that when uh, Jesus says earlier that you have kept my word, it's a present tense. So the contrast is that you have and are keeping my word, but you did not in the past deny my name. So this indicates that they had uh, gone through some specific historical 
uh, incident of persecution and that they had passed the test with flying colors. They had and continued to be obedient, but in that instance, when they had the opportunity to deny Christ's name, they did not do so. Now, the source of this persecution is indicated in the next verse, in verse 9. It says, Indeed, or behold, literally in the, in the uh, Greek, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet, and to know that I have loved you. Now, this is a fascinating verse for a number of reasons, but I think ultimately what we take from this in terms of application is going to be the reality that whatever we go through in life, no matter what the difficulty, the persecution, the adversity, the heartache, and the more I go through life, the more I talk with people, the more I spend time uh, hearing everybody's stories, the more I realize that none of us go through uh, this world, the devil's world, without... Uh, going through all kinds of heartaches, disappointments, uh, persecutions, adversities, whatever they may be. Everybody goes through it. You can look across this congregation. You probably do at times and say, you know, I just wish I had a life like so-and-so. They just don't really seem to go through it. And you never know. And as I see people who come and you look, look at their life and it looks like they they never have a problem, you realize some of the profound heartache and disappointment that they go through, whether it's with parents or with children or just in terms of their marriage or in terms of their uh, their own career, whatever it is, everybody goes through this. But the reason we think that they have it together is because they're applying the Word of God to it, and as a result, they are uh, in control of their circumstances, and they're not letting their circumstances control them. And nobody gets away in this life without going through tests because that's how God produces uh, growth for us. This congregation faces a unique situation in terms of uh, persecution. Now, before we look at this first phrase, which is translated, uh, indeed, or behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, we have to uh, take it, let's take it from the end forward. First of all, let's identify who this synagogue of Satan is. It's uh, to the church of, of uh, Sardis. Actually, uh, in Revelation chapter 2, verse 9, we have this same, and this is, that's a typo on my part. It should be the church of Smyrna. Uh, we have the same phrase in Revelation 2, 9. I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich, and I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. So twice in this context, you have believers in uh, in Smyrna and again in Philadelphia who are dealing with a Jewish population, a population of unbelieving Jews who become the source of persecution for them. Now, why are they called a synagogue of Satan? Well, first of all, we need to take note of what, Roman, what Paul says in Romans 9, 6. There he says that they are not all Israel who are of Israel. To be a Jew requires only one thing, and that is that you are a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
That's it. You have to be a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in order to be a Jew. If you're a descendant of Abraham, that's not enough. Abraham and Isaac isn't enough. The, the descendants of Abraham and Abraham and Isaac comprise the uh, genetic mix that makes up most of the Arabs. But to be a true Jew, you have to trust in the messianic promise of God in the Old Testament. So those in the Old Testament who did not trust in God's promise of a future deliverer, Messiah, Redeemer, were not saved. In the New Testament period, Jews who do not believe that Jesus is the Messiah are not saved. Thus, they are not true Israel. They may be physical Jews, but they are not uh, full spiritual Jews following in the footsteps of faith laid down by Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jesus made this same point in his tactful way as he uh, challenged the Pharisees, and he said, You, addressing the unbelieving Pharisees, are of your father the devil. This is one of those great passages that indicate that God is not the father of everyone. I remember in my first church, I made the point that God was not the father of everyone, and half a dozen people just had their hackles rise, and they had never heard that before because they had uh, listened to a few liberals on TV way too much. And I went to this passage and said, See, everybody starts off with their father, the devil. God does not become your father until you trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior. So a true Jew is one who has accepted Jesus as the Messiah. A false Jew is one who rejects Jesus as Messiah. When we are born, we are born dead in our trespasses and sins. We are born under condemnation. We are born in Adam. And the only way to change that status is for us to trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior. At the instant that you put your faith alone in Christ alone, God the Father imputes to you perfect righteousness. When His justice sees that perfect righteousness, then God the Holy Spirit regenerates you, makes you spiritually alive. That is what the Bible calls being born again. And all this happens simultaneously. And then you are also given eternal life. All this happens simultaneously. The logical progression is imputation, uh, regeneration, and uh, the imputation of eternal life. So those who are born physically Jews still have the spiritual death issue that has to be faced, and that is only resolved when they put their faith alone in Christ alone. Now, let's go back and look at the passage again. Revelation 3.9 says, Indeed, I will make... That's a poor translation in the, uh, in the New King James Version. Their other translations are almost as bad. New American Standard translates it, Behold, I will cause... And the uh, NIV also says, I will make. Actually, the verb is the verb didomi. The, the Greek verb didomi means to give or to grant something. It usually indicates a gracious gift whenever God the Father or Jesus Christ is the subject of the verb, which is what we have here. It is the Lord Jesus Christ speaking. And he says, I will give. So we should think of this as some sort of grace gift from the Father. Make those of the synagogue of Satan, that is, these unbelieving Jews who have been the source of persecution, 
they are then defined as those who say they are Jews, but they're not. They claim to be Jews. They claim to be the recipient of the blessings of God simply by virtue of their physical relationship to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But they're not. Jesus says they lie. They lie because they've never trusted him as their Savior. And then there is a next clause. Indeed, I or behold. It, it picks up the first behold. That's translated indeed here in the... Uh, in the New King James, actually the Greek behind this is the word edu, which means behold. It has the nuance of indeed look, see, uh, indeed. I will make them, and here there is a, a verb shift. It's not ditto me again, now it is poieo. This is why many translators try to make them the same, is because there is a similarity here in terms of idiom. That Jesus Christ is going to provide something. The word poeo means to do or to make. The didomi was a present tense verb. Probably a future, futuristic use of the present. Now, you don't understand what that means, but a few, a, a, the present tense can have about eight or nine different shades of meaning. And sometimes a present tense is used with a future uh, nuance. And that indicates that something is happening in the present or is spoken of as a reality in the present, even though its fulfillment is in the future, but it's an immediate future. If you'd, a future tense verb would indicate something more in the distant uh, future. So when Jesus says, I will give those of the synagogue to you, it's a present tense. I am giving, even though it hasn't happened yet, it's immediate. And then it is stated in a future tense with poieo, indeed I will do this, I will bring them, I will make them come and worship. Now, this isn't something that Jesus is forcing them to do. That's not the sense of poieo here. It indicates just something that he is going to do that will bring about in history. They will come and worship before your feet. Now, there's two different ways in which people look at this particular verse. One way in which people look at this is in the far distant future that when Jesus Christ returns at the second coming, uh, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord. All demons, all unbelievers will do homage to Jesus as the Redeemer and as the Sovereign King, even though they are not uh, believers. Even though, I mean, even though they are not believers and even though they are not saved, they will still be forced to recognize who He is. That is a far distant application of this verse. I believe that what we have here is something that happened historically in the situation in Philadelphia. That Jesus is promising that in your situation, remember we have to interpret this within the historical context, that there would be a change among these Jewish oppressors, just as there was a change in the Apostle Paul. Many times those who are most hostile to Christianity often uh, are fighting hard and resisting hard the, the gospel presentation, and they often come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And I believe that's what this is talking about, because it uses the word to come and worship, proskuneo, which is the common word for worship. And they are worshiping along with the, those in the church in uh, Philadelphia. This synagogue of Satan, I skipped over the concept of synagogue, but uh, we saw several synagogues uh, on our trip in, uh, when we were over in Israel. 
But the word synagogue may refer to a literal building or it may simply refer to an assembly or an association of people. We've never discovered the presence of a building, a synagogue in Philadelphia archaeologically, but that does not mean one was not there. But it's not necessary because uh, during the Second Temple period, which is the period of both Zerubbabel's temple and then its uh, 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 renovation under Herod, the term referred as much to a group of people or an association as an institution. Uh, the synagogue in, by the first century was a, the central institution in Jewish life. And in fact, in Israel, there were uh, the Talmud of Palestine refers to 480 synagogues in existence in Jerusalem uh, at, at the uh, time of Vespasian, just before the destruction of Jerusalem. And one scholar has recently proposed that there were at least 365 synagogues in the late Second Temple period. So uh, somewhere between 350 and 450 synagogues just in Jerusalem. So you can see this was a prominent feature in Jewish uh, religious life at the time. Now what we see in this verse is that God is promising that he is going to bring these uh, Jews to a point where they're no longer hostile, but they're going to be worshiping Christ along with uh, the believers. And they will also come to know that I have loved you. This is a must be understood to be something that happened historically at that time. That this is something that Jesus Christ is doing. He's fully aware of the sorrow, the suffering, the adversity they're going through, and he is going to act in history for this congregation to do that and to uh, make a change. Now, why is he going to do that? Ah, here's where we get into the uh, difficulty of the grammar. Let's skip through a couple of these slides and just go to the next verse. Revelation 3.10. Because you have kept my command to persevere. Now, if you look at this in your English Bible you will note that there is a period at the end of verse 9. As if it ends with the simple statement, I will make them come and worship before you feed and to know that I have loved you, period. And then verse 10 begins with a capital B and because, indicating a brand new sentence. Now, this is going to be very important because the main clause of verse 10 is the clause, I also will keep you from the hour of trial, which will come upon the whole world. But we have to understand something here, and I just want to set it up for you this week. We'll come back and hit it again because this gets a little technical, and we need to hear it a couple of times for it to sink in. We have this word translated because that I noted earlier, hati. Hati can mean because or for, both of which have a similar meaning, and they overlap frequently, or it can have this third meaning of that. We just want to focus on the because or the for meaning. Now, there's two ways in which you can understand the relationship of verse 9 to verse 10. The way it has been traditionally translated is that verse 9 ends with a period and verse 10 begins with a new sentence, because you have kept my command to persevere. Now here's the problem. Number one, translators of the King James Version had a tendency to, tr to make every verse autonomous, an independent sentence, even if... It's a long sentence in the Greek. They tried to make each verse an independent sentence. Uh, problem number two. In the Greek, there is no punctuation. 
In fact, they don't even have a space between words. They didn't even have hyphenation. And you may have a word like, like because where you would have, you would end the line with B-E and start the next line with C-A-U-S-E and it could, would break the word anywhere, not even at necessarily at a syllable. So the only way that we can tell as English in, in doing translation where a sentence would break is on the basis of, of syntactical features. So you have to do a tremendous amount of, of work and uh, let me show just give you a couple of points. If this is the option, one of the principles that we see is when you have a have be, because at the beginning of a sentence, it modifies or gives the cause or reason for the main clause. And that would indicate in verse 10 that I, Jesus, will keep you from the hour of trial because you kept my command to persevere. Do you, anybody have a problem with that? that this is a promise that you'll be kept from the hour of testing because you persevere. What if you don't persevere? Ah, then you go through the hour of testing. Now, we'll see that the hour of testing is the tribulation. So that would seem to indicate perhaps partial raptures. You have other problems related to that as well as to as it impacts the whole concept of grace versus works. But the alternate punctuation would look like this. See, I've moved the because clause to the end of verse 9. This would read, Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet, and to know that I have loved you because you have kept my command to persevere. And here we see that, that in light of their persecution and their perseverance and obedience to Christ, no matter how tough things got, now he is going to, uh, in turn, bless them by uh, changing the persecution situation, and many of these Jews will eventually come to know Christ as their Savior. This would mean that the statement in verse 10b, I also will keep you from the hour of trial, begins a totally new thought. Now, this is supported uh, in the usage of the grammar. First principle, when because begins the sentence, as I've already said, it states the cause of the following clause. That's a little bit awkward. It's called the suspensive use. That's the technical word. Don't get too confused with the technical language. When because begins the sentence, it states the cause of the following clause. Second principle, when because follows a comma, as it would if we placed a comma at the end of verse 9 instead of a period, it links to the previous clause. That makes more sense. Now, the least common use of because begins the sentence. This is the least common use. It's very rare for because to begin a sentence. Out of about 450 uses of the causal hati, grammarians recognize only 12 as suspensive. That is, they've identified approximately 450 times when this word hati has a causal sense of because or for. And out of those, all through the New Testament, and this is indicated by several different grammarians, only about 12 would begin the sentence. That's an extremely rare construction. Furthermore, the Apostle John uses, the, uses hati in a causal sense about 180 times, and only 11 of those is it suspensive. So this is rare for John. So the, 
indication is that the normal way in which John would use this word would be at the conclusion of a sentence, not to begin the next sentence, although he does that a few places. So then you come in and you look at how it is used and, and look at the context, and you, then you bring in comparison with doctrine and other things, and we realize that this phrase, because you have kept my command to persevere, links to verse 9 and gives the reason why God, why Jesus Christ is going to uh, work in their situations because they have been faithful and they have endured in the testing that he is going to alleviate that particular testing and there will be a change take place in the hearts of these uh, unbelieving Jews and many of them would, will reverse course, trust Christ as their Messiah and this will relax the uh, source of adversity. The Lord does the same thing for us. He doesn't necessarily keep us under the same test for a long time. Now, some of us uh, may question that. We go through some tests over and over again, and for some of us, if it's a medical test or family test or things of that nature, it may go on for years, if not decades. But what we know from this is the Lord is not unaware. He is always aware of whatever we're going through. In fact, when I was in Israel, I played with and toyed with and just couldn't quite justify buying an, uh, uh, an antique tear bottle. Psalm 56 talks about the fact that God pays attention to our tears so much that he stores our tears in a tear bottle. And in the ancient world, when you went through a significant grief, what you would do is you would take a small bottle and you would collect your tears and put a cork in it and that would preserve the memory of that sorrow, that loss, that grief. What Psalm 56 tells us, and what's reiterated here as well as many places in Scripture, is that our sorrows, our heartaches, our adversities do not go unnoticed by God. We may think He's asleep. We may think He's busy with Iraq or somewhere else. But what the Scriptures teach is that He is fully aware of every test, every heartache, every adversity, not to the degree that He preserves a memory of those. But He is always going to provide for us, supply every need, and on occasion He will reverse the circumstances as we pass the test. Let's bow our heads together and close in prayer. Father, again, we thank you for your grace, your goodness, that you have solved all of our problems ultimately at the cross, that there Jesus Christ paid the penalty for all of our sins. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we're studying this this morning and that we might uh, be responsive, be encouraged, be strengthened by the fact that you are always attentive to our every sorrow, our every heartache, our every adversity. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here who's never trusted Christ as Savior, who's unsure and uncertain about their future destiny, that they would take this opportunity to put their faith alone in Christ alone. Jesus Christ paid the penalty for your sins. There's nothing that you've done, no thought, no act, nothing that you have ever committed, no sin that you've ever committed that is too great for the grace of God, too difficult for God to forgive because Christ paid the penalty on the cross. The instant you believe Jesus died for you, the instant you entrust yourself to him, you have eternal life. Father, we pray that you would strengthen us and encourage us with the things that we've studied this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.